This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu. And I'm Alex Diamond. And we are the hosts of this special series. Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, and fieldwork experiences. This special series centers the dilemmas, tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines. Towards this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections. Please visit our website, Ethnographic Marginalia, at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We really look forward to hearing from you. Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano Long Institute for Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And on that note, let's begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of the Ethnographic Marginalia podcast on New Books Network. Today, we have with us Dr. Ani Hikido. Annie is an assistant professor of sociology at Colby College. In her work, Dr. Hikido uses ethnographic methods to examine how intersections of race, class, and gender function in dialogue with globalization. Her current project focuses on entrepreneurial Black women who drive the township hospitality market in Cape Town, South Africa. Thinking through township tourism as a site of post-colonial narrative production, she studies the link among intimate service labor, the construction of authenticity, and perceptions of the post-apartheid nation. Annie has articles published in uh, qualitative sociology and ethnic and racial studies, and we highly recommend you read them because they're absolutely fantastic. So welcome to the podcast, Annie. It's so great to have you, have you here. Thank you. It's such an honor to be speaking with both of you today. So let's get started. And to start off with, we'd just love to know more about how you became a sociologist, but also a sociologist 
who uses ethnographic methods in particular? Mm-hmm. Well, I never actually thought to study sociology until after I finished undergraduate. Um, I was sort of late in that way. Uh, but I think to some extent, growing up not white in this country means you're often something of a sociologist from a young age. Uh, so I'm Japanese American. I grew up in the California Bay Area with mostly white friends in a mostly white neighborhood. Um, and I recall going through this phase when I really just didn't want to be Asian. And it wasn't because I actually felt that I experienced a lot of overt racism. Um, there was some of that sort of like ching-chong playground taunts and that sort of thing. But I think what frustrated me more was that I never felt like I was seen as a complex individual. It's that feeling of you're always marched by the group for both um, my achievements and also my, my shortcomings. Um, and so being aware of that, how I was seen, um, I actually like have kept journals since second grade. And I, I would just write like so much about how angry I was about all of that. Um, and maybe that documentation speaks to some early ethnographic impulses. It, it's kind of great because now I have this whole like archive of Annie Hikido from a young age. <laughs> um, but uh, in college, I, I studied public health, which started to seed some sociological perspectives. But even then, I hadn't really thought about sociology as a career path. Um, and in fact, when I graduated, I did didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, so I worked some part-time jobs back in my hometown of San Jose, and I was really lucky in that our public library doubles as the San Jose State University Library. Um, and it's actually called the Martin Luther King Jr. Library, and it has just this huge collection, collection of, of race literature. Uh, and so I actually stumbled independently onto critical whiteness studies there, and I just became really taken by it. Uh, one, because it explains so much of my own experiences and that, you know, why were my white friends granted these statuses as individuals and not part of the marked group? Uh, and two, because I felt that studies of inequality always sort of tend to focus on those who are disadvantaged, the quote unquote others. And I sort of wanted to know more about the other side of that dynamic. Uh, and so I was really interested in how advantaged persons also sustain inequality racially and, and along other axes of identity. So I actually applied to graduate school expecting to do a study on white people in California, uh, which in 2013 was not something people were talking about as much. Um, But once I got to graduate school, my projects sort of evolved. But uh, that's that's how I first sort of started. And in fact, as I was sort of thinking through this question, I owe a lot of my sociological path to the San Jose's public library system, actually. That's a a great recommendation, uh, Annie. Um, it's it's interesting, really interesting to hear sort of how your personal journey uh, contributed to your interest in sociology, um, but also the it sort of raises the question because you didn't end up studying uh, white people in California, at least that's that's not the research that that you've published, right? Um, you studied something. I mean, the 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 racial interest and sensitivity is there, but uh, you studied the the township hospitality market in South Africa, in, in Cape Town. Um, so how did you, how did that become, as a, as a woman from California, how did that become your research site? Right. Yeah, of course, that's the second half of the story. Um, I, I did publish, my first article is on white students in California. So I did sort of um, begin in that sector. Uh, and I did that my first year of graduate school, actually. Uh, but then what happened is um, I, I got to graduate school and my interest sort of exploded. But even that was sort of based in sort of an early experience. Um, I actually uh, became interested in South Africa from a younger age as a sort of a foil to my own family's history. Uh, my grandparents were incarcerated during World War II because they were of Japanese descent. 
And so I grew up with these stories of what we would just call camp, quote unquote. And um, for years, I thought that story of racialized forced removal was only my family's. Like that was just a Japanese thing. Uh, and from today's standpoint, that really seems like some severe navel gazing. <laughs> but um, I grew up in California and in the 1990s, it was it does seem like this special era of like peak multicultural colorblindness because I couldn't see those same patterns of racialized dispossession operating around me. Um, and so I didn't actually learn about South African apartheid until ninth grade. And I specifically remember watching this documentary about the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. And I think the extremity mm. of the case, uh, this black population, this entire nation being forcibly removed in different ways uh, on a completely different scale by a white minority, uh, it really shocked me because it felt familiar, but again, in a much more contemporary sense on a much larger scale. And I, I recall feeling like my own ignorance in that moment, um, even as, it, again, it sort of felt familiar. Um, and so in college, I studied abroad in Cape Town, where I effectively was a tourist there for a semester. Um, at, even then, though, I didn't think to conduct research there until my first quarter at UC Santa Barbara, where I did my PhD. Uh, I took a seminar that included a number of global ethnographies, which really made me reflect on my experience in Cape Town and really how white it had been. Uh, I think I was there for an entire semester and spent a half day in a township, and the other, the rest of the time was in these very white neighborhoods. And I started to think how that created this actually very narrow perspective of South Africa. And then when I came back to the U.S., everyone would ask me, uh, how was South Africa? As if you know, I could speak to the the status of the entire country. Mm. Uh, so I linked that to my initial interest in whiteness. And I started thinking about how township tourism interrupted or sustained a lot of those globalized ideas about, again, like South Africa as a whole from your from these very limited experiences. Um, so this was now my first quarter of graduate school. And I needed a paper topic for this seminar. And I was actually Googling around and found that you could actually stay overnight in some of these women's homes. So I wrote my first uh, paper in grad school about their websites and how they strategically angled toward a Western audience. Um, and actually, eight years later, I finally published that paper. So, you know, if there's any grad students, hang on to your seminar papers. <laughs> they, don't, they might be useful later on. Um, and so after that quarter finished, I realized uh, I had really come in only as sort of a race scholar at that time. And um, that project, that beginning of the project really made me realize that, oh, you know, I also need to consider what's going on with gender, class, and in this broader scale of globalization. And I was really motivated to continue the topic because in some ways it re it's always reminded me of how much I didn't know at different points of my life, whether through my own family's history and in relation to other countries or um, that first uh, quarter in grad school. Uh, and it really continues to show me how much I, I can still learn. I really enjoyed your recent piece in Qualitative Sociology titled Making South Africa Safe, the Gendered Production of Black Space on the Global Stage. In this article, you show how Black women entrepreneurs that you spend time with, they curate a specific experience for white tourists who both fear and desire the peripheral parts of the city that are considered to be, you know, in quotes, dangerous. Um, using Irving Goffman's theory of impression management, you analyze both front stage and backstage strategies that the women entrepreneurs use to manage tourist anxieties, desires, and expectations. Uh, and the figure of the, you know, in quotes, African mother seems like a very key front stage strategy. So we would uh, love it if you could tell us a little more about how this figure was mobilized and why. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So if you're an international tourist in Cape Town, you'll probably be warned at some point that the townships are dangerous and you shouldn't go. At the same time, when you're in this very white European Cape Town, uh, the townships represent what a lot of tourists think of as quote unquote real Africa, which is a code for poor and black. Um, And so in my article, I talk about how the fear of townships is specifically animated by this controlling image of a hypersexual black man in poor urban streets. Uh, And black women are often not thought of first in that sort of, again, imagination of a township, but they are the ones who are running these guest houses and kind of recognize that they can counter that perception. And a lot of this comes through acting as, in their own words, these African mamas. Um, They welcome you into their homes, which already is a kind of gendered space and feminized as opposed to masculine streets. Uh, And you walk in and they give you these hugs uh, upon your arrival. They cook for you. And it's just like they really do dote on you. And I would watch this really just change the expressions of tourists who felt a little anxious coming in. Um, And they would just really like break into smiles and all of a sudden feel comfortable once they were there. And so um, on one hand, this these performances uh, are really quite reminiscent, reminiscent of the Mammy figure in the U.S. Um, and that actually resonates transnationally since Black women in South Africa still disproportionately work in domestic service. Um, and in fact, a lot of the women told me that they knew how to serve white people and white tourists because they had been domestic workers before starting these businesses. Um, and so a lot of times they'd say, I mean, this is not anything new for us, but it's just better now because I get to do it from my own home and it's a little bit more on my terms. Um, and so they, they do these performances and the tourists would come and just clearly, like visibly look more comfortable. Um, and it had economic payoffs. I think that's another important part of this, this study is that obviously for the women, it kept their businesses afloat, but um, the state just loved it. I interviewed a few tourism representatives back in sort of the heart of the city. And they would just tell me, like, these women are really the ones who are, like, changing the perception of townships. Um, they're, they're really making it into a kind of family space as opposed to a feared space. Um, and so when women change the perception of Black townships through this entrepreneurship, they're actually making the place more marketable and facilitating transnational capital into this disadvantaged Black community, uh, which from a neoliberal perspective is, like, hitting all the goals. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the state really felt like they wanted to support this as well. Yeah, that that is really interesting, um, and that's that's sort of the sort of the, the front stage that image. Um, but you also do a really good job uh, describing what goes on behind the scenes, the the backstage, to to use the the Goffman framework. Um, so how uh, the strategies of attracting tourists that they used weren't just the the black women themselves, but was actually an entire community mobilization, including neighborhood surveillance practices. Um, so yeah, what, what were those strategies and, and how did, yeah, well, what was going on there in the backstage as sort of part of uh, making this community uh, accessible and, and seeming safe and desirable for tourism? Yeah, so the backstage is really everything the tourists weren't aware of. Uh, So while on the front stage, they were seeing these maternal performances and uh, the women are creating these impressions of townships and and South Africa at large more broadly as sort of safe and welcoming, um, the backstage work really operated to make sure that everyone actually stayed okay and that everyone kept on thinking that these were great places to visit. Um, And that included managing some of the real crime risks that stem from impoverished conditions. Uh, I first write about how for 
often large student groups would come on sort of learning tour experiences. And when, when they knew, when women knew that there would be a large group coming, they would actually enlist the assistance of local municipal police, as well as other sort of community neighbors, uh, to engage in sort of a collective insurance that everyone in these groups would be okay. Um, and part of that was because they genuinely did want to make sure that nothing happened to these people, but they were also quite aware of the stakes involved. Um, they all knew that if anything happened to a white tourist from another country, uh, it could quickly get into the media and really put a bad spotlight for on the townships, these women's businesses, um, and it have, could have repercussions really on a sort of global level. The ones who really articulated this to me were actually the municipal police, because in some sense, one might wonder, why were they like taking the time to come here? Uh, you know, it's sort of just a small market and a small group of tourists. But um, one of them did tell me this, this really is an international issue. If something happens to a white tourist, the Western embassy gets involved. And suddenly it's all over the media. It becomes a foreign relations matter. So I think that everyone really realized that this could blow up to huge proportions and it would have a feedback loop both symbolically and economically. So again, it's not that they, they did really care about these tourists, but they were also really invested in protecting a positive image of the township market as well as the country more generally. <clears throat> um, oh, I can also speak, there was other types of strategies as well. I think a lot of times these women really inhabited sort of community leadership roles as sort of quote unquote mothers in the community. Um, and I, I think I mentioned this also sort of dialogues with a lot of uh, what Patricia Hill, Patricia Hill Collins writes about black women in the US also. Um, and so they held these kind of special roles as sort of um, township ambassadors to these outside tourist groups. And they would also obscure risks by taking these small details like scheduling around local protests, uh, managing the local scolies, which is the term for young men who might have tried to steal or engage in other criminal activity around tourists. Um, and what this achieved symbolically was that incredibly tourists seemed to really forget that this was still a place that struggled with social problems that, again, stem from poverty. Um, and a lot of times when I talked to them, either as they were in the township or afterwards as they were leaving, I would ask, um, you know, what do you make of this? What's your experience been like? How does this make you think about townships in South Africa? And they would often say like, wow, you know, we came from town where it was really rich and we see that this place is really poor. And so it means this country is really unequal, but it turns out that everyone's making the best of it and they're all happy and, and this is great. <laughs> uh, and so this, this backstage work really helped to sustain a certain type of emotional consumer satisfaction that again, kept women's businesses afloat economically but also built upon this existing multicultural narrative of post-apartheid South Africa, one that um, kind of propagated everything is better now, the white supremacist system is down, and it, it really obscured the endurance of a lot of problems and inequalities. And the celebration of that actually really reminded me of the brand of multiculturalism I grew up in the Bay Area. So that's a sort of another connection that kind of stems back to my own background. That's, that's fascinating. Um, Question was, so were these strategies sort of for the township tourism? Were they actually making the neighborhood or the, the township itself safer? Um, that's a hard call. I mean, I get asked a lot, like, to what extent is the reality of danger and crime here? Um, I think a lot of times it depends on who you are. 
uh, as a sort of non-Black foreign person, it really felt the weight of like my body's being valued in a greater way than perhaps, you know, people who are local there. Um, I think the symbolic work largely was sort of limited to when tourists came. Uh, if you really wanted to make townships safer, of course, that would take a lot more sort of structural change and uh, resource redistribution. So uh, I don't have exact quantitative measures and statistics, but it is still known to be, quote unquote, the murder capital of the world and by some media accounts. I do think that is a sensationalization to some extent, but I also can't deny that crime remains a problem there. And just one more follow up. How... How were these women uh, getting the, I forget, or I didn't quite catch the, the term you used for sort of the, the young men in the neighborhood mm. who may have uh, uh, the been scullies. occasionally. Yeah. The scullies. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, how were these women getting the scullies to, to back off? Yeah, and I, I don't think they, were, they always had full knowledge of what was going on, but one woman in particular um, knew that she was sort of looked up to in the community, again, as someone who was making the township look good and not just sort of this awful place that the world thought was uh, dangerous. And she told me that when she was getting ready to have a big group of tourists and students come, she talked to a lot of other neighbors, and these neighbors also knew these young men who might do something. And she would sort of tell people, hey, everyone's coming to my house. This is a community investment. We all want our place to be better, right? Um, so make sure that the kids don't do anything. And then word got back to her that these young men were sort of saying, yeah, we will we'll be good, you know, because we also want people to come and really think of our place as a good place. We don't want to contribute to a negative image because we realize this is an international spotlight. Um, So again, by really sort of tapping into a sort of communal investment and making the place look good and knowing that the promise of economic (laughs) capital might flow in, I don't think it was often as much as they hoped, but the promise of it was still um, learning. That's really interesting. And, you know, um, while you were speaking about how your body was valued differently, just obviously brings up the question of... um, you being uh, a foreign woman ethnographer in the space, right? So I guess that would be, uh, it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about what it was like to navigate research as a foreigner in Cape Town, also being a foreign woman in in your particular field sites. Um, were there particular complications, but also pleasures in, in uh, doing this fieldwork? Yeah. Um, in terms of what I wrote, I mentioned earlier how the fear of townships is based in the figure of this violent Black man. And as evidence, I point to my own experience of warnings I received. Um, in the article, I draw upon a moment that occurred the day before I went to Kailicha, this township, for the first time. I was walking around this area in the central city called Company Gardens, and it's a pretty popular tourist location, um, mostly white part of town. And these two young told me, uh, they asked, what are you doing here? Um, I, and you know, I told them I'm going to Kailicha tomorrow. And, and they didn't hold back from simply saying, if you go there, you're going to be raped. Um, and I don't analyze myself in the article too much just because of word constraints and limits, but you can imagine how that type of comment was probably invited by being a 25-year-old woman traveling alone. Um, and I've, I've since also wondered, like, you know, there's not many East Asian people living in Cape Town, so it was obvious that I wasn't a local, which is probably why they thought I was being really stupid and going there. <laughs> um, but I've, I've also wondered if there's something to do with, like, the hypersexualization of Asian women involved there. Uh, I mentioned how the man trope travels transnationally and I think the same can be said of stereotypes of Asian women that you know stem from that 1875 page act and have continued to persist and been promulgated through global media um, 
In terms of other sort of instances, when I was in the townships, I, I would get a lot of like marriage proposals. Um, in particular, I remember men just sort of yelling on the street, like, oh, like that China girl, like, Uchatile, which in Eastern Kelsa means, is she married? Um, and then they'd sort of be badgering me about this. Uh, and I, I think this also happened to a few of the white female tourists also. One analytically advantageous aspect of conducting this project as an Asian person was that it really allowed me to understand how the boundaries of whiteness operated in black townships. Uh, I'm not white, but I could observe how being light-skinned from the U.S. made me a kind of like contingent white person in that context. And I observed that also with handfuls of like other Asian Latino tourists. So um, it was interesting to think about in that regard. Uh, but okay, so I was still marked as Asian because of these China girl comments. Um, and on, on one hand, it's just sort of like annoying, I think. But um, eventually, you know, I, I guess I got used to it. Um, and it always felt a little bit half in jest since they were yelling it in passing. But I, I did get to a point because I was spending, you know, 24-7 here, really. I wasn't going back to the town every day or the city every day. And <laughs> eventually I just started to talk back a little. And I would I would actually say, like, which means uh, I'm not from China. I, I don't want a man. <laughs> and this always, on one hand, made my hostess and whoever I wish just, like, start laughing hysterically. Uh, I think everyone just found this Asian-looking woman who was speaking a little bit of Eastern Kasa just, like, crazy to begin with. Uh, and the man would also just look, like, shocked. Like, who was this? Who was this? You know? <laughs> um, so I learned how to take these potentially uncomfortable situations and flip them in ways that, you know, asserted myself that I didn't think was being too disrespectful. Um, and in some ways, you know, I, I later was thinking about it and it's just building off of years of training from what I experienced in the U.S. Um, it's not like getting racialized and gendered is something that only happens in South Africa. And so I, I thought about how I think I just build a sort of new repertoire of responses wherever I go. Um, not, and it's not to justify or condone it, but it's just a, you know, it's just a strategy of being in the world. Um, and I live in Maine now, so, you know, I've been building a new repertoire in that way. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, you know, while you were writing your book, I'm sure the process of editing and rewriting has been quite a journey. And I actually hope that some of these reflections that you've just so generously shared with us, especially uh, these, uh, you know, I guess funny, but very profound encounters around um, ethnography. I hope they, you know, make it in your book manuscript. But I was curious to know, are there certain interactions that you feel compelled to leave out? Is it a bit too embarrassing for you to write about? Because I know that all of us ethnographers have a long list of trivial but mortifying uh, faux pas that we'd much rather forget about. But um, yeah, we're just wondering if you could we could persuade you to share I think when um, I was when I think back on my field story. work a lot of times people assume that because it's a black township there must have been stories about you know like being in danger and it being really being at risk and things like this but my daily life was living in homes of women uh, and and so some of my memories of sort of embarrassment and uncertainty had to do with more sort of domestic concerns uh, and just how I was coming off in someone else's home um, I, and I, in some ways, like, again, this image of like, oh, like you're going abroad and this is so daring just doesn't square with me because I'm actually quite a homebody person. Like I'm talking to you in my pajamas right now from my apartment. <laughs> um, but I think when I, I remember being embarrassed because and, and feeling a lot of pressure in that I really was a 24 seven guest in these homes by virtue of one being a tourist and two being a researcher. 
And I felt the pressure to be a good guest a lot of times. And so that's in combined with a lot of feminist ethnographers who talk about, you know, think about what you can do for these people. Um, don't just come in and be extractive. So I was always sort of thinking, okay, what, what can I do? How can I help this sort of stuff? Um, and because I would watch these women do so much work day in and day out about food preparation, cleaning the home, um, all the normal sorts of domestic responsibilities, I, I try and find ways to sort of help out in these ways. And often I would. Uh, but at the same time, it often revealed how incompetent I am at a lot of domestic activities. And so off, I, I remember specifically one time I was trying to help peel potatoes for a meal. And they were one woman was like watching me do this. And I could just tell she could think like, wow, Annie is so bad at this. <laughs> you know, she's just taking way too long to peel these potatoes. Um, and she very kindly didn't say anything and let me finish. And I think let me feel like I was being helpful, to be honest. Um, but after that, no, no longer asked me to help peel potatoes. <laughs> um, and so I, I found I was better at cleaning, I think. So I would try and do that. Um, but yeah, things like just food prep, I, I found myself to be really uncomfortable competent at and and another one was like ironing I'm really bad at ironing <laughs> um, and so I, I remember feeling kind of embarrassed that I couldn't be as helpful as I wanted to and 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 another level of them not wanting to call me out on it and just letting me be bad at it and then directing me to something else to do <laughs> that's very endearing <laughs> it is no and it in it uh, you write about some of this but it, it sort of reveals you're you were in sort of this weird space between being a, a guest and tourist right but you, you stayed much longer than people actually stayed and and obviously explained your your research project right so how I mean how did the how did the women understand you in that space how did they how did they treat you yeah, I, I think it evolved over time because I spent so much time there when I first came and I spent about three different fieldwork trips there over a course of six years. My first trip, I was treated just as a tourist would be, you know, here's coming someone coming from another country, and I would explain my research intent. And they were often quite used to having international journalists come to their home. So in a lot of ways, they felt that I was another journalist who was going to write about their place and really celebrated as this sort of amazing small business by an African woman. Um, and so in that regard, my first trip, I remember feeling that I saw everything from a very tourist perspective. Um, when I went back for a longer period of time, and then I, I think I wrote about how I would go to each place, not once, but multiple times, just to sort of build a relationship and, and <laughs> convince them that I'm not just here to get the sort of quick journalist story. And with that, I think they continued to see me as sort of this tourist and daughter in a lot of ways. Um, they would often call me like my child in East Palsa. Um, but thankfully, I think the dotage got a little bit less <laughs> as I stayed longer there. Um, and that, that actually was a relief to me. I, I found the dotage to be kind of like overbearing in some ways, because I'm someone that often likes to just be on my own. Um, but it was sort of, I think, a building of trust and sort of backing off from me. Um, but at the same time, maintaining that I, nothing would happen again, because of the reason that if something did, it could potentially be really bad for business too. And have you stayed in touch with with any of these women and even maybe shared articles with them or, or yeah. research findings? Yeah. So I think in total, I interviewed and stayed with a core of 19 women. Um, and of those 19, I would say that seven to eight, I'm very close with. Uh, and so throughout the project, I've kept in touch with them over WhatsApp mostly. 
Um, and I always felt very responsible in, in engaging them in part of the research. And on one hand, I, I sort of knew they weren't going to want to like read the whole dissertation. <laughs> but what I did is um, <laughs> on my last trip, I, I took one trip before the pandemic hit where I had written my dissertation. And I actually went back to most of them and read them, at least the excerpts where I had featured them. Uh, because one, I wanted them to know what exactly I was doing. I think a lot of times it's it's hard to communicate to not just like your research participants, but anyone who's not in academia, what academia actually is. And so I always felt like I couldn't be completely honest until I came back and read what I had written. Um, and in most cases, they said, that's great, Annie. We're so happy that you're, you've done your studies and we've helped you. Um, there was one woman who actually was a little bit more attentive to what I said, and it was because she had had prior experiences with Western journalists that she really didn't like, actually. Mm. Um, and so with her, she was <laughs> way more attentive to my wording and actually told me to edit some things, which I, which I honored. Um, and so it was, it was sort of a nice thing for me to be able to involve them in that, in that step afterwards. And again, it wasn't every single one, but the ones who featured most heavily, I did feel like I owed that to them. Um, and the other nice thing about it was that I, I always, throughout the research, felt really conflicted by using pseudonyms or real names. And I think in earlier drafts, I used pseudonyms just because it felt like a safeguard and the sort of thing we're expected to do. Uh, but my advisor was actually a proponent of using real names. She had used real names in some of her work. And um, I felt that if I read back how I was presenting these women, they could then make the decision whether or not I used a student or real name. And in many cases, all except one, they wanted their real names. So uh, that was a nice thing to do. And what, just out of curiosity, what, what was the thing that this woman wanted you to edit out or change? Right. I remember that I had written... So it was it was a, it was just like the slightest wording thing. I had said that um, she let's see she was able to get help from Westerners to help build her website, and I was talking about specific ways in a chapter on how they were building their entrepreneurship journeys, how it in fact involved a lot of um, making these ties with white people. And she didn't contest that, but she wanted credit for it in that she would say, "I want you to make sure to say." I also gave them free food. I gave them free accommodation. I was very active mm. as this sort of businesswoman, and I had I, and it made me realize, oh, you're right. You know, this this wasn't just you receiving help; it was really negotiating a, a sort of um, uh, agreement. And so, it, it really actually helped the research in that small way. That's really interesting. Um, so, a question that we love asking our guests: um, What were the ethnographies that inspired you while doing field work and and now while uh, I gather you're writing a book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, oh, gosh, you know, there's so many I could point to. <laughs> um, I think I would be remiss to not name my advisor's book first. My advisor was um, Franz Wendance Twine, who wrote a book called A White Side of Black Britain. And this book was about white mothers of biracial black and white children in England. And very different topic in some ways, but thematically similar in that she was looking at how white persons engaged across color lines. Um, and I think, one, I just really appreciated her style of writing. It's very vignette focused. It's very readable. And in fact, I think the most common criticism she gave me on drafts was that it's too boring. <laughs> she would often say, like, Annie, this is boring. Like, can't you make it more interesting? And I was like, okay, I'll try. Um, and, and really, that insistence, I think, did help me in the long run. Um, her book, yeah, and her book, similarly, as you can imagine, is very engaging. And it, it also reminded me to treat my white participants with patience and analytical care. 
I think in some ways, white Western tourists are really an easy target for criticism. And the earlier drafts were just like, look at these white tourists being neocolonial and, and that kind of argument, um, which, which is not totally incorrect. But at, later I thought about it and thought about her book. And at this, you know, they're also my research participants and deserve just as much sort of um, care as the other people. And so um, I don't think the point is really to vilify or humiliate these tourists, but more to explain the conditions, their interactions, and what consequences there are structurally. Um, the second book uh, is Dealing in Desire by Kimberly Hong. <laughs> I became familiar with Kimberly's work actually my first year of grad school when she had some articles out. And even at that point, I remember thinking, this is a very different topic for me, but I, I just really like her writing. And the way she's analyzing things. And then fortuitously for me, her book came out the year before I conducted the bulk of my field work. And I remember reading it and just immediately feeling that it was this kind of methodological gold standard in terms of the level of immersion and analytical tightness it really displayed. And, and now I kind of laugh because I'm always saying like, you know, I, I knew about this book before it won all the awards and it makes me feel like some sort of sociological hipster, you know? <laughs> um, but I, I remember reading this book when it first came out and just thinking like, wow, she just did this at such a level I aspire to and, and really with so much care. Um, there's this one part in particular I remember where she mentions that even though she's put herself through a lot of physical and emotional stress in the study of sex workers in Vietnam, uh, she never lost sight of the fact that she could eject herself from the project while her participants could not. And I found that very thoughtful because I think as ethnographers, we're often encouraged to wax on about how hard we had it. <laughs> and there's a certain type of like endurance capital to be gained from stories at the conference tables and stuff like that. Um, but when, so when I was in the field and even when I returned, I, I always tried to remind myself of the relative advantage of being the researcher and, and really the responsibilities I have. Uh, in my to my main participants in terms of how I represent them and, and also keeping in touch with them as I was sort of talking about earlier. And there's also a definite similarity in your work in terms of how sort of these broader global forces and, and changes even on a national level get expressed in these micro interactions, which is something I think is really powerful in your work and in Kimberly Huang's book. Yeah, and... Um, Totally. I mean, she just she does such an excellent job of doing it. And I think both of us would also have been inspired by Jillian Hart's work. Uh, Jillian Hart is actually a South African scholar who is based at Berkeley for a long time and has a book um, more known in geography than sociology, actually, where she sort of critiques a top down globalization paradigm and talks about how there are really there's really a lot to be said about globalization from thinking about the ground up. And in a way, it's quite political because it's challenging a narrative of just this um, totalizing, nothing can be done, again, globalizing force that we can't do anything about. Uh, so so I, I appreciate Jillian Hart's work a lot as well. So Annie, kind of a, a last question. Um, what are you working on now? And, and specifically, um, something that's faced all of us as ethnographers uh, and human beings, right? Um, how has the pandemic affected uh, and, and shaped your current research? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, currently I'm still working on the same project trying to do the book. Uh, I'm still tightening a lot of my analyses actually through writing article versions of chapters. Uh, I'm working on an R&R &R right now for one about how women's homes symbolically communicate different racialized visions of development. 
Um, and actually, the blind reviewers have just been amazing <laughs> in all my sort of article cases. So if anyone's listening, thank you so much. It's been really helpful. Um, so that's where I am at in terms of the project progression. Uh, in terms of the pandemic, um, I mentioned earlier, yeah, I stay in touch with a lot of the hostesses I was closest oh. to. And um, one of them did pass away, actually. Uh, and it's a testament to, I guess, how much I appreciate them that they would tell me that. Um, in fact, almost immediately after she passed, I received about like four consecutive WhatsApp messages. Um, you know, and it was just, I felt actually quite thankful that they kept me in the loop about that. And we were just sharing remembrances of her because um, the other thing is that most of them knew each other. It was a pretty small market. Um, and so... Actually, before she passed away, even before that happened, um, I actually did conduct some interviews with them during the lockdown. And as you can imagine, um, the pandemic forced them to shut down their businesses. It cut off their income. And, you know, they found other ways to survive, as people in townships will do, like selling foodstuffs and other small items. But it's, it's been really hard. Um, and in fact, I think looking back at that period, this was actually about a year ago in January, I, I think I was almost motivated to do the interviews less because I needed the data and just because I knew I could wire some of my startup funds to them like for quick cash. Um, and I'm not under any impression that that one-off transaction helps a lot or anything. It's, it still feels kind of on the charity side of things as opposed to structural change. But at the end of the day, I think I was really like, you know, if I can use Colby's money to just give some sort of assistance, then I'll do that. And, and also it's an interview and it'd be sort of uh, it also is still data at the end of the day. Um, so I was doing that and catching up with them in a formal way beyond just WhatsApp last year or the beginning of this year, really. Um, and then I think theoretically, the pandemic really reveals the fallacy of neoliberal thinking. Um, there's there's so much fanfare about pro-poor entrepreneurialism and tourism. And if there's no redistribution of capital and land, mm-hmm. then these women's, these women's businesses still remain pretty precarious. Uh, again, as shown by this pandemic, it's just wiped them out in a lot of cases. Um, and this is what I was getting at towards the end of the article when I point out the contradiction between symbolic ma- manipulation of intersectional identities, such as playing the African mama, and the structural disadvantages that are linked to these same identities, but in this case, were really being obscured. Um, and I find that, in thinking about teaching now on this side of the world, um, a lot of my students think first of the symbolic forms of racism, uh, language, micro-interactions, these things. Um, and I, I think now, increasingly, we're moving towards a perspective that those are linked to structural uh, forces, but I don't think we actually are precise enough in examining the relationship between those things. So the article also reminds us that as we're paying attention to symbolic forms of social processes, um, the relationship to the material structural level can actually be kind of surprising. Um, and if we want to be effective in tackling larger social problems, yeah, I think we need to be a little bit more precise in thinking about how that actually unfolds. Beautiful. And it's a, it's a great note to end this really insightful interview Ani. thank you so much for taking time out and uh, yeah i really enjoyed all the you know the backstage of your own work and it was uh, it was great to get a glimpse into how you're thinking about your own work and super excited for your book to come out and you know for your book to to be its its best version and come out in the in the near future i'll say um but uh, yeah thanks a lot for taking time out yeah, and thank you so much to both of you for making the time for me to talk about this. Um, I really appreciate you, everyone listening and also hopefully reading the article also. Yeah, 
everyone again, um, qualitative sociology, we'll add a link to our um, ethnographic marginalia website as well as the New Books Network page. Please uh, feel free to uh, to take a look. It's it's a it's a great article. <laughs> I really enjoyed it, and it's also, by the way, I think your advisor should be very proud of you. Oh, I'll so make her listen to this podcast too. <laughs> <laughs> engaging and enjoyable. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely.